Welcome to the 79th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helberg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. And hello, everybody. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Hebard, President and CEO of Nature Crops International, a leader in growing, processing, and supplying plant-based supplements and personal care products, some of them rich in omega oils. These are vital for health, but too often derived from fish oil, krill oil, and other products involved in the overexploitation of forage fish, crustaceans, and other marine wildlife. So, Andrew, welcome, and look forward to hearing about your vegan alternatives. But before we get into all of that, let me ask you what we ask all our guests, which is, how did you first connect with the ocean? Well, uh, David, Vicky, thanks so much for, for having me on your, your uh, show today. So coming from the UK, island community, I think we've all got a sort of islander mentality and islander genes somewhere in us. And I just need to be near the water, on the water or in the water to function. It's, a, it's as simple as that. Just, you know, some people want to be surrounded by trees. Some people want to be surrounded by snow. Um, I want to be surrounded by water i just feel that the water calls to me i'm not a very good swimmer which is a little bit ironic i love being on the ocean i'm a great watcher of nature and i find that i understand the nature and the rhythm of the seas i understand the nature the rhythm of nature generally being a sort of agriculturalist and what have you but i really understand the, the rhythm of the oceans and whether that's Idle flows, or I, I don't know, but it speaks to me. It speaks to my in, inner self. Right. And and they got some pretty rough cobble beaches there in the UK. What were the first beaches you went to? And then when were the first warm beaches? So your knowledge is, is your knowledge is good. Well, being being in the UK, of course, you've got the whole of Europe at your doorsteps to travel to. So you can get to some pretty nice warm beaches in the Mediterranean, in Greece. The UK has got some fantastic beaches ranging from really amazing sandy beaches as far as the eye can see uh, on the south coast and the west coast um, and got some pebbles and rocks. You know, we got we grew up my vacation holiday or my childhood vacations were spent in rock pools, just climbing over the beaches, looking in rock pools, finding stuff that you could sort of look at with amazement and what have you. When I first met you, we served on a panel together. So it was kind of an oddity to have someone running an ocean organization and then having someone running a, a health product. Remind us what that connection was. You know, how do we kind of get the topics going together? Great question. So we were, we were at the Regenerative Earth Summit, I believe, in right. Boulder, probably four or five years ago. And the subject there was about regeneration. And our business, as you mentioned, we, we grow crops and turn them into ingredients for health and wellness products. And we've made the shift from growing crops, what you call conventionally using standard practices to everything we grow is regeneratively produced now. So regenerative agriculture has become much more understood in the last few years. But that's that's what attracted me to that conference was the to learn about regenerative practices. And of course, we look to our ingredients as being regenerative for our health as well. Omega-3s are essential for health and uh, they're very regenerative for our overall health and wellness. So that's a key part of our business, producing plant-based omegas. But then we started to join up all the dots and think, well, if we can grow crops regeneratively that have a regenerative impact on our health, 
But in doing so, also have a regenerative impact on the ocean because we're not extracting you know, millions of tons of uh, small oily fish and turning them into uh, oil and protein. So it kind of it was a confluence of those factors. Just for the audience who's not familiar, talk a little about regenerative agriculture. It's about healthy soils that are full of worms and bugs and bacteria and actually absorb carbon dioxide and then the petrochemical treated soils tend to become carbon emitters. What's your background in agriculture and how did you come to the idea of regenerative ag? So I'm an agricultural scientist by training. That's my, that's my sort of qualifications. And I've been involved in building specialty crop supply chains globally for over 30 years now. We grow crops in different parts of the world, working with different farmers, teaching them how to grow a crop, sort of stewardship required making sure that it's safe, sustainable, traceable, all the things that people associate with risks in the supply chain, we try to manage out. So that was my background. And of course, when we first started doing that, everything was about conventional agriculture. We use herbicides, fungicides, fertilizers to grow things. And then industry was calling for something better than that. Um, And of course, at the time, you really had two options. You had conventional agriculture or organic agriculture. For a farmer to convert from conventional to organic is not a trivial undertaking. It's a three-year process. It has you know, risks and challenges associated with it. And if you fail, it's a binary yes or no. You're either, you go through the process of producing something organic, and if you fail to meet the organic certification, you're back to conventional, having spent the time and the money and the investment in, in, on that journey. Regenerative is a, is a hybrid version of that. It's striving towards farming better. It's focused on putting stuff back rather than taking stuff out. So regenerating the soil, and as you say, David, it's about carbon sequestration is a key part of that. It's about being mindful of the decisions that you make, about the inputs that you use. It's certainly not trying to mimic organic production and say we're not going to use any of this, but it's using it in a much more sort of judicious way, I suppose, in a mindful way. And I think what really appeals to us about that model is that growers immediately buy into it because they say, well, we are stewards of the land, but I can't, it's not practical for me to go down the organic route, but absolutely following a regenerative uh, process with the war and the, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what, amongst all the terrible, terrible things that, that has, you know, the consequences of that, one of them that is being felt by uh, farmers, of course, is the price of ammonium nitrate in urea. And, um, getting up to nearly a thousand dollars a ton it's really making people think about gosh that that's a lot of money to spend on something that i was going to end up down you know down, down a watercourse somewhere so we're absolutely seeing that coming to people's mind thinking okay this is this is now driving me to make better decisions it's unfortunate that it's a monetary thing but that is often the way with with humans it's not until we feel it in our wallets that do we sort of uh, you know galvanize <laughs> galvanize ourselves into action yeah, so that would also mean I think you're, those were the elements that you were talking about that would go into fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So, so we're having a shortage of fertilizers, which is hopefully shifting that balance to actually taking better care of your land and looking for alternatives, which would hopefully result in less dead zones in the ocean from all of that stuff running into the into the water bodies. That's right. It's all connected. It's all connected. It is. It absolutely is. And, and we are all connected as well. You know, we're starting to 
increasingly be aware of that, but it is all connected. You're right. So how did you get from your agricultural science to uh, establishing your company with the focus on on agricultural nutrients and health supplements? So there's a, there's a story, David. So I'll try I'll try to keep this short. Twenty twenty five years ago, uh, I was very fortunate to be working in an industry of growing crops that a lot of them were garden flowers, uh, horticultural crops. And a great friend of mine was one of the sort of le- global preeminent chemists, biochemists at the time, looking for sort of remedies, the, the, the bounty that nature provides for health and wellness, sort of going into everything from supplements to pharmaceuticals, et cetera. And, and one, one of his many uh, accomplishments was he was the co-inventor of Lorenzo's oil. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie Lorenzo's oil or know the story, but it's really worth checking out. He was one of the co-inventors of Lorenzo's oil. And so he really understood how the body, the human body, metabolized fats, lipids and fats for health and wellness. Or if you didn't have the right ones, how it metabolized it, then you had negative health outcomes. And he said, look, Andrew, with your background in agriculture and your passion for ocean wellness and your interest in, in sort of biodiversity, you really might want to start looking for a plant that could replace fish oil and something that could be grown uh, year after year by farmers and has the same health benefits. And of course, this was when the omega-3 industry was really starting to take off. And uh, you know, the fish oil bin industry was, was was growing very quickly. So we spent a long time looking for a plant that could produce the health benefits of fish oil. And um, there aren't that many around globally. And we we probably evaluated 100 or 200 different species from around the world. And we went through a process thinking, you know, even if you find the right one, you have to find one that is willing to be grown, can be domesticated, because a lot of these things have come from very remote parts of the world, and one that farmers would embrace. Because if a farmer has grown wheat or corn or barley for three generations, persuading him not to grow corn or barley for another generation is a big challenge. So we did a combination of agronomy research, finding out what crops would grow. We did biochemical analysis to see what the composition of this looked like. And then we did uh, human clinical trials to make sure that when we you know, use the oil, we get the anticipated health benefits. So that was a very long process going from what was almost like a, a stage of plant discovery out in the wild, you know, like the druids did back in my homeland 3000 years ago to something that's sort of bring it into the modern day where we're looking for crops that could be grown in rotation with things like canola and wheat and making sure that they're safe and what have you so that was that was the background and um you know we were very lucky we did a lot of research we did a lot of studying we did a lot of trial and error but we also had a lot of luck uh, and we did find a plant and we've we've now named it ahi flower, ahi after the yellowfin tuna and flower because it has flowers on it. So think of sunflower, ahi flower is kind of like the, you know, the, the equivalent. We now grow that on, on uh, thousands of acres with farmers that we've recruited and trained and we press the seeds using mechanical old-fashioned presses like they make olive oil. And we supply the oil into the dietary supplement, health and wellness, and now looking at sort of uh, plant-based beverage markets as well, where people are looking for a fully regeneratively grown 
plant-based omega that they can look at and say, yeah, I, I don't need to take fish oil. This this will be an ideal replacement for fish oil. And of course, you don't get all the other effects of it repeating on you and kind of feel good about taking it at the end of the day. And where did you find this plant? It was it was referred to as weed before they realized it was an agricultural product. Right, right. So so it's actually found throughout many parts of the world. It's found here in North Carolina. It's found up uh, into Maine and into Canada, all through Europe. And it falls within this family of, of plants called lithospermum. But we actually found it in the UK growing in a hedgerow. Colloquial name in the UK is called stone seed. Very few plants, if you can imagine eating a seed that would actually have, the shell of ahi flower has calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is the same as limestone. It's the same as oyster shells. So this has this unique calcium carbonate shell around it. And um, we're starting to look at other applications for the calcium carbonate because as well as being in oyster shells, it's actually what goes into a chicken shell, an, an eggshell. 97% of an eggshell is calcium carbonate. So you feed, we have backyard chickens here, we have to feed them bits of grit to make their eggshells. So we're now looking at grind up, grinding up ahi flower seed to provide an omega-3 and also a calcium carbonate source for the uh, for the eggshell and, and the overall gizzard health. So we're sort of tapping into a whole plethora of other things there that the, the plant species has. And I suppose the my closing comment on that is, isn't it wonderful that we can go and discover new species that are biodiverse, they use pollinators, they could be grown regeneratively, very low users of fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides, um, and add to the overall sort of rich tapestry of crops that can be grown. With your ahi flower supplements, which I have to say I do take and love, how would you compare their strength, their benefits to a traditional fish oil? Your question there about what the difference is, I would describe it. This isn't the best way of describing it, but it's a, it's a very cliched term. But it's about the journey through your body rather than the destination. And by, by that, I mean, if the destination is we create EPA and DHA in our bodies, which we do, and they're essential, absolutely essential for maintaining cardiovascular health, cognition, uh, inflammatory uh, modulation, all of those sort of things. But when we create EPA and DHA in our bodies, we actually, at each process uh, along the way, we create really valuable metabolites that help to go to control those things like inflammation management, cognition management, etc. So the, the human body is a wonderful biochemical reactor that does things, doesn't do things willy-nilly or, or wastefully. It does things when it needs to do it. And what we're finding is that when we ingest plant-based omegas, our body uses them like on demand as a feedstock, as a, as a building, uh, you know, building blocks to then create these other molecules. And it says, I need to deploy omega-3s for this, in, this condition. Inflammation management is a great example, cardiovascular health. So yes, you can take preformed EPA and DHA. You absolutely can, and you will absolutely see a benefit from it. I wouldn't argue with that. But if you take what we would call precursor EPA and DHA from plant-based omegas, your body should probably see a lot more benefit by using the metabolic steps in our body that we've, we, we have evolved to use 
to create all these other sort of health and wellness benefits. You could say that if the destination is EPA and DHA, that's probably only 10% of the benefit that we're missing. We're missing the other 90% by not going through those steps. And what we're finding is that if you take preformed EPA and DHA, you're not as efficient as making it yourself. So your, your body says, well, if you're going to give me the end product, I'm going to shut down all this stuff uh, ahead of you. Whereas if we start eating better nutrition, our bodies will perform and function much better using better ingredients and better raw materials to build the end products rather than taking them. And, I, and I'll put a caveat on that. I am not a doctor. I'm not a medical guy. That is, that is the opinion of Andrew Hevard. And, uh, so these are better in essence to stick with the plant-based omegas versus the fish oil. That's what we believe. And that's what we've seen with people we- that take it. It's great for humans to have a plant-based diet. It's also pretty great for fish when you consider that over 70% of the global fishery is is now overfished or or in a state of collapse, that the biodiversity of the planet, which is mostly salt water, is crashing. And about a third of all the commercial catch now is what they call forage fish, essentially mm-hmm. taking out the, the small fish that the larger fish feed on and converting that to chicken feed, hog feed, and, and fish oil. We're taking out somewhere in the region of 15 million tons, which most people can't comprehend what 15 million tons of fish looks like. It's a huge amount of fish to make fish oil and protein. The protein gets fed to pigs and chickens, and the oil gets fed to largely to farm-raised salmon and then to pets and to humans. And it's absolutely unnecessary. There is there is zero justification for saying that this is an essential industry. We can humans are wonderfully inventive, creative. We can solve such bigger challenges than this, and yet we're kicking this down the road. Inevitably, it will stop. There's no. We can all see the the end game in sight here, which is there ain't no fish left, and we've got to we've got to shut this down. Let's think about solutions now and come up with something better. Let's run towards this problem rather than sort of have quick fixes. Can you imagine if we harvested 15 million tons of land-based food for oil and protein, which, which is what we did with the bison, right? <laughs> but when it's in the ocean, it's kind of out of sight, of out of mind. It, it just comes in. We don't have to look at all the carnage that we've caused and, and how we're denuding things because we get given the finished product and we say, oh, yeah, it's fish oil, it's great. But if we had to watch it in the fields and the woods outside, and if it wasn't bison, we were, you know, we decided to harvest seagulls or rabbits or something else. You know, we've got to move beyond this idea that we can just take stuff from the wild. Uh, we've done it with plant species. We've made them extinct. We've done it with animal species. We've made them extinct. We can't afford to do that with the oceans. There's too much at stake. You, it, loss of a species like the carrier pigeon, as tragic as that is, mankind continues. Loss of small oily fish, that's catastrophic to, to, the, to climate change, to ocean health and abundance. So we've got to be thinking big, big solutions here and not carry on doing what we're doing, which is, um, you know, that, that, as I say, there's no justification for it other than money. We're both so excited about the alternative to fish oil. 
by having you create and working with farmers to come up with plant-based omegas. I think it's such an awesome idea. Well, thank, thank you. So, so here's to sort of put that into, into context. Each acre of ahi flour that we grow produces as much oil as just under half a million anchovies. My dad turned 100 last uh, October and my That's mom impressive. will be 98 in, in just a couple of weeks' time. The year that he was born, there was 1.8 billion people on the planet. Just in 100 years, 1.8 billion. Now, as David mentioned, we're, we're eight point something. At that rate of progression, we can't keep thinking about taking stuff from the land, from the ocean, from the air, from the atmosphere. We've got to think regeneratively and putting stuff back in because um, it's, just not, it's just not a pretty outcome, a pretty ending if we don't do that. And the good news is it's not really a sacrifice to eat lower on the trophic levels, to eat your green vegetables, as my mother used to say, um, and get your omega that way. And maybe some of those small fish anchovies are great sources of protein. Sardines, anchovies, they are great food for humans. We don't need to, you know, we can cut out the middle animals there, the pigs, the chickens, the farm-raised salmon. And uh, that in itself would be a big step forward about, you know, in terms of sustainability and what have you. But to your point right at the beginning, without a healthy ocean, there is no planet Earth. Andrew, I want to go forward a little bit because you mentioned in the beginning of our interview, you're working with farmers to grow these flowers. Um, are you foreseeing an opportunity to grow the number of farmers that you're working with or expand the crops or what like look out, you know, 20 years, tell me what your industry is looking like for plant-based omegas. What I'm learning is that this is a much slower burn than I thought it was going to be. I am getting closer to the end of my career than the beginning of my career, but that's not, that's not that daunting. I believe what we're trying to create is a legacy for future generations by introducing a new, a new species that farmers can grow. They can make, you know, very good profits, and they can grow it regeneratively, etc. Our moonshot is to have a million acres under cultivation, and that would be if you're a million acre crop, you are very, an important global crop. You know, you're you're in the leagues of flaxseed, for example, that people are familiar with. So, I do think we'll get there. I don't think it'll be in my my career, my probably not even my lifetime. But you know, we're very optimistic that. All of the signals are there. Consumers are very much dialed into wanting sustainable green uh, alternatives. They don't. They, they're not tolerating greenwashing. They want authentic, the real deal things. You know what the planet can give us now is obviously people are reassessing that. So we've got those sustainability challenges. We've got also the recognition that you know most of us in the Western world have a deficiency of omega threes. I mean, it's just because. We eat so many of our foods coming from corn and soy, which are very high in omega-6. Uh, our diets are out of whack. And to give you an example, our sort of evolutionary genome, our genetic coding, is kind of optimized for an almost an equal amount of omega-3 to omega-6, somewhere between equal and maybe 3 to 1. We're currently between 20 to 1 and 40 to 1 because we're just taking in so much more omega-6 from commodity oils and, and fast foods and that sort of thing. So, so there's a, a recognition that if we actually ate healthier, we had a healthier diet, we would have health, far healthier health outcomes. But that would be at the cost of the omega-3 industry to say, 
that's going to put more pressure on the fisheries. So there has to be a plant-based solution. What proportion of the omega-3 supplements that people are taking today are fish-based versus plant-based? And, and 95. Between 95 and 97% is fish-based. So I am unique. <laughs> we, as, as am I. We are, you know, but I, that, that will change. I mean, undoubtedly, it's going to change. And we supply ahi flour oil to many supplement brands, and uh, we're delighted the brands that have embraced ahi flour. And we've, we've got a very healthy pipeline of other brands that are saying, yeah, we've, we've, we've got to be thinking about what our consumers want and those supply chain issues around fish oil and, and what have you. So the tide is turning, excuse the pun again, but uh, it, it, is, it is turning. I really, it draws me up the wall when people tell me, Oh, yeah, I'm going for a plant-based diet. I, I only eat fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you read the book? I'm sure you have. Uh, I Halfway through it, but Eat Like a Fish by Bren Smith. Sure. I have not read the book, but I certainly know Bren and have been on a panel with him. But yes. Really? I've really enjoyed reading halfway through the book there. But he's sort of applying the regenerative agricultural practices to aquaculture with seaweeds and shellfish and what have you, but it's a great read. And as I think about vertical farming and, and nutrients per acre, when you can stack stuff on top of each other, he's, it sounds like he's really found a winning formula there. I think the future of seafood is largely going to be about sea vegetables and shellfish and uh, the future of land-based agriculture hopefully will be regenerative and also the place we get our omega-3s. Here, here. Here, here. And with that, Andrew, we would like to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. And good luck with your company and with spreading the, the knowledge of plant-based supplements and helping us save the ocean. Well, thank you so much. I've re really enjoyed it. You, I, I love conversations where it kind of stretches my brain to think big picture and, and blue sky stuff. So thanks so much for your time and uh, a pleasure being on the, on the channel with you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.